This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Anne Nicholson-Weber, and joining me are Matt Miller and Steve Pickering, both of whom are involved with the production of St. Nicholas, hosted by Shaunaki and Shanghai Lo at the Irish American Heritage Center. Uh, St. Nicholas is a Connor McPherson play, and it's importantly a one-man play, uh, two 45-minute acts, an hour and a half of one guy on a stage and an audience, that guy being Steve under the direction of Matt. So I wanted to talk about um, McPherson, who I think is a marvelous writer, and Matt, you've uh, directed McPherson before at Johnny mm-hmm. um, the Weir. Was that two years ago? Uh, that was just last fall. Just last last fall. And we talked about that then. Um, and and then talk about one-man shows and kind of see where we go. So maybe, um, maybe Matt, you would just uh, explain a little bit about what the piece is um, and how it fits into McPherson's work. Sure. Uh, this piece actually was right before the weir. Uh, so he wrote this, he wrote this play uh, in 96, I believe somewhere around then he was, I think 25 or 26, yeah. which is inconceivable. Right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, and this was, uh, I, I believe the last kind of monologue, uh, one man structured uh play that he wrote before he he jumped into to writing uh, more ensemble pieces like the weir and seafarer and um shining city so um it's interesting to chart just how his storytelling sensibility begins to shift uh how he pulls an audience in with this amazing tale and then weaves in all of these amazing philosophical elements about what it means to be human and bigger life questions. And it's like more, I, you know, it's funny. Any, any time you perform it or, or talking more than any other playwright that, that I encounter in a long time, people will come up and just say, I love McPherson. Mm-hmm. I love, you know, the, it, people just, Love McPherson. Yeah. And just, uh, just very briefly, the 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 plot is. I was just going to say, plot, up, yeah. I'm sorry. Is a um, uh, the guy doesn't have a name. He's a he's a Dublin theater critic who uh, is. I can think it's safe to say he's very successful. Uh, he's an alcoholic and and uh, is uh, somewhat jaded, acerbic, but uh, we've taken to say. And he is captivated by a young actress and follows her on a sort of odyssey to London and then falls in with a cabal of vampires and begins to work for them, finding young people to bring to their house. I'm going to quickly explain the experience because although Steve told us the plot, you have to picture you as an audience member, you're just sitting there in a completely undressed theater. It may actually be um, artfully undressed, but it looks like, you know, mm-hmm. just backstage, no, nothing's happened. Mm-hmm. And then this guy comes in and sits down and starts talking to us. And the situation is never very clear. Who are we? Why is he talking to us? He's just telling us this story. And that's the whole play from the beginning. He just tells us his biography for the last, I don't know how many years. Have you ever tried to figure out how long the course no, of it is? I, I, you know, Deirdre and I talked about this <laughs> at one point, but I never talked about it with Matt but, that, uh, because, you know, Looking at the way that other other people have um, interpreted the end of the play, mm-hmm. where he ends up, yeah. and where he comes to us, from Matt mm-hmm. and I, I think it was uh, talk a bit about that. Well, you know, in doing like production 
histories and looking at other productions of this, the thing that stood out to me was that this character pays a price. There's a cost to his decisions and his choices in this story. He's mm-hmm. recounting about his life. And, and to me, the productions that I was seeing and reading about were not taking that into account. And they were all presenting this critic who was kind of perhaps reestablished back into mm-hmm. a position of authority, was writing perhaps for a paper again, was in a very neat and tidy tweed suit and looked like the the, the stereotype I think we have of a hoity-toity theater critic in America. Mm-hmm. But to me, that was not consistent with what he was talking about and what his story was. How much he lost. And how much he had lost <coughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and the devastation that he had mm-hmm. gone through, yeah. the, the, the spiritual devastation that he mm-hmm. had gone through. Mm-hmm. So it seemed inconsistent to me to put him back in a position of power or authority mm-hmm. or just presenting him as someone whose life seemed to be back together. Right. Um, and, and from that, we, you know, that affected everything from costumes to, mm-hmm. to acting choices. Uh, when we, we decided to, to stay true to that, that there has been a cost for this man mm-hmm. and that you cannot, if you lose your soul, <laughs> uh, regain it, uh, back in, uh-huh. it with, with, with ease. Mm-hmm. We would, it was funny as we, I mean, I was um, uh, I was doing a play at the Goodman, uh, asking at Susan by Seth Bulkley. and at the same time I was um, memorizing, trying to memorize the McPherson, <laughs> and uh, I had an iPad and um, which can record my voice, and I record sections of the play, and then I would ride the subway or the yeah. train, and as you're sitting there and you're making the journey from there to the Irish Center. And you're looking at the middle-aged men mm-hmm. and you're finding those <clears throat> archetypes. And we, um, it's funny. We talked about at one point the idea, not that the character was homeless, but that the character had a sort of, um, nomadic mm-hmm. look mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. And to me, I kept uh, seeing people with, um, hoodies mm-hmm. and long, very nice coats on. Uh-huh. That it was that, you know, that effort to keep warm. But on, on the one side of the economic scale, you would see guys in alleyways who had a hoodie uh-huh. and, and a, and a very nice coat on. And then on the upscale, you would see guys with very expensive glasses. So we talked about that a lot and which shoes, which pants, which mm-hmm. sweater, uh, does this work? And it, it's kind of a clean, Clean homelessness. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to a certain extent, that is no, the that's, that's, he's no, well that's, dressed, but mm-hmm. there's a shape, you know, an architecture. Yeah, you, you, you get the sense that he's been through something yeah. and yeah. that he's, he's not living a comfortable existence anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you have so little, uh, to work with visually, really. I mean, you've got a mm-hmm. costume and a set that never changes mm-hmm. and no other bodies on stage and very few, very little mm-hmm. ability to make stage pictures because only one guy can't do very much with that. So it makes the vocabulary very limited um, mm-hmm. and very essentialized maybe. Right. So I can see why you would have to, I mean, of course, you always think hard about a costume, but it would really matter to say, give us as sure. much information. <clears throat> plays from other cultures, plays from other countries coming here. And there are universal elements, but there's a lot of um, iconography that an Irish audience will recognize, mm-hmm. you know, what that that bar is or what these scenes are. Mm-hmm. So they have all this information mm-hmm. attached to these words that comes into the theater with them. Mm-hmm. We as Americans don't have that. We're, we're in to some degree, it's in a slightly foreign language. And interestingly, I 
that leads also to the question of uh, accent. And my understanding of what you did was it wasn't an Irish accent, but there were mm-hmm. Irish intonations. That's mm-hmm. what I heard. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, if you there's could, an Americanization that's Americanization of those dialects. Mm-hmm. It's going on. It's funny. Maggie and I were talking the other day because I'd read an article about um, the Beatles in that. Um, that Liverpoolian accent almost doesn't exist anymore. Mm. I'm a Beatle, you know, yeah, that right. sort of, uh, that sort of accent because the air pollution is cleaned up in Liverpool. So the accent, the environment has changed. And as it changed, the vocal cords have been affected. Oh, wow. To the point where they sound a particular way. Yeah. Now, when I was, I was in the UK in, uh, 2005 and, um, there was a big push, and our UK friends and stuff would talk about it, you know, throughout the year when we were talking to people, how everyone, <laughs> it was funny, everyone was making an attempt, no matter how posh they were, to sound yeah. somewhat like the Geico lizard, that there was a very sort of accent like that. When, when Which is what? Where is that? What does that register? Middle? Low? What is the lizard? Uh, I think low more than anything else. I mean, as far as that goes, as far as our play goes, mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, we chose listening to, uh, Deirdre had given us some stuff with critics and, and with some of the guys who this character is probably based on uh-huh. that he had had experience with. But uh, there's an Americanization of that Dublin dialect. Mm-hmm. So there's only a few times when you listen to them. Um, of course, there's probably guys who could do a lot better than I can, but the, um, it, there's a kind of Americanized wash that goes through with it. And his cadence all the way through it, I find that his rhythms are somewhat American as well. Mm-hmm. That um, that sort of filters in and out. You can, I think with his language, with his poetry, you can identify what has a kind of Americanized quality to it and what has a very Irish quality yeah, to it. Yeah. I just want to go back and say that... Um, <clears throat> It's really difficult to take a blank space like this. And he calls for a bare stage mm-hmm. uh, more than anything. But there's a, an extraordinarily, you know, an extraordinary amount of work that Matt and uh, Julian Pike, who's our lighting designer, and uh, Victoria Dorio, you know, to subtly drive that play right. into different places. And, right. of course, since... Uh, you came on Thursday. They've done, uh, with the tech, they've done so much work in terms of, you know, these long, very lyrical passages in there. And it's, mm-hmm. I can notice it for the audience. It's, it's, it's a little bit seamless, but it's a beautiful sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Much different than what the last one we did, which was wham. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so very, subliminal. Very so you're using the mm-hmm. light. I think definitely. So. And, yeah. and there's a tiny bit of music, uh, mm-hmm. underscoring. Mm-hmm. Again, very subliminal. I mean, you say, oh, mm-hmm. there's a tone yeah, there. I didn't right, hear that, right. but there it is. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. that's what that's what <laughs> that was <laughs> the desired wanted. effect right. was. Uh-huh. You know, there's so many kind of extraneous sounds around the Irish American Heritage Center. It's a, you know, it's one of the O'Hare's flight patterns. Uh, you know, you, you hear the planes going over, and so there's a lot of noise in that uh-huh. center. And and part of what I I talked to Toy about was taking advantage of that and mm-hmm. slipping in some sounds. That is this. An external is this the, sound. Is this the rehearsal this room next door? Of, it, yeah, yeah. Or is this, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so there is this kind of second guessing the audience mm-hmm. does to a small degree with some of these small That's moments it. of, oh, is that happening or is this something outside? Right. And it, you know, it, it keeps you on edge. And, yeah. and, uh, isn't that funny? 
Matt and I seem to do these plays in these sound chambers, like when we did <laughs> A Girl with the Sun in Her Eyes for Pine Box. There were trains every uh-huh. five minutes because yeah. the second stage, and of course right. the L tracks are right over. But it was a cop story. And so it was fine. It, it was right? just so, yeah, so it worked out. But this is the same way. It's like mm-hmm. at any given time, I mean, there's all this wonderful life that goes on. And last night there were five parties. At the, I mean, there were Christmas parties. It was a, I, I don't know what, there was a dance down in the thing. I just love that Heritage Center. Yeah. What, you know, all these people uh, doing all this place. Matt was saying yesterday, I just love doing plays here because there's so much going on there. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's like last night it was bagpipes. Oh, my. We were sort of sitting there. And that, you cannot ask for better uh, than bagpipes. Right. Come on. I mean, this place built for bag, you know, right. bagpipes off in the distance right, or something. Right, right, right. Right. So, well, so I'm picturing you, Steve, in the middle of this bear of a performance. And, and well, let, let's, let's, let's go now to the one man show aspect of it mm-hmm. because, um, I'm so interested in the, relationship that it creates between an audience and an actor when there are no other actors to relate to. And you you don't fiddle with that. I mean, you just sit there in the middle of the stage and stare at us. I mean, talk to us. There's no there's no question that we're your interlocutor. So what is different for you in preparing a, a role like that where your only relationship is going to be with the audience? And what is harder about it other than that you have to remember all of it by yourself. Hmm. Um, so just talk about that experience for you. Well, I, I, um, I'd never done a one-person show, and uh, it's a whole new skill set mm-hmm. uh, for me, if you call it skill. But uh, it, I, I don't know if I've figured out all the rules and back rules, because generally, you know, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, if I lose something or if I feel as if I'm lost, uh, I can turn around and there's someone there, hopefully, who knows what's going on. Right. Here you don't have that right. aspect. I think um, it's easier to feel lost. It's easier, especially with the, the sort of uh, securitist logic that goes along with it. Uh, with the text, you mean? Yeah, uh-huh. with it, with his thought process, mm-hmm. which is absolute genius. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I, uh, you know, I don't, quite think I've been inside a monster mm-hmm. as uh, large that feels as large or intimidating. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm Are you talking about the character or the text? No, I'm talking about the text. I'm uh-huh. talking about the whole experience uh-huh. of it. Um it's uh it's frightening. I uh you know I've been fortunate I I've performed a lot of places with a lot of terrific people. And I very rarely get uh frightened anymore mm-hmm. of walking in walking on stage in front of about a hundred people right. just because by now I've done it for 32 years in a lot of different situations right. uh, and different things can give you stage fright but right now I'm in the middle of a block of stage fright I haven't had since maybe my first year in college uh. and it's just one of those things you know you it is a part of the element of the man that he's frightened uh-huh. of what life is, yeah. frightened of what life is doing to him, frightened of what he's done. And that sense of regret, that sense of all of those things that sort of come into play. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? No, to absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I've been so impressed by uh, your ability to 
face down that monster every <laughs> night. Because we do. We call is, it the monster. Yeah, yeah. It we is, do. It's like, yeah. It, you know, it, Connor McPherson uh, in his liner notes for this play talks about how uh, there's a certain kind of mischief that can happen when it's just a, one actor talking to an audience and there is no fourth wall mm -hmm. and we're in a theater together and we're recognizing that we're in a theater together and that allows for something very different to happen um, in, com in, in comparison to other theater experiences right. that you have. Uh, and you know, one of the points he makes is that in, in a, in a situation like this, what we don't, what we have in front of us is not so much an actor, it's a guide. We have a guide who is taking us, mm. uh, on this journey into a story, uh, and by extension into our imaginations, mm. um, that is far more powerful in a way than a traditional theater, um, production mm -hmm. can be in, in some, in some <coughs> ways, um, or it, it has the potential. Yeah, it has be, the potential to be. It 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 definitely um, it it definitely uh, for those who spend some time in the theater, forces you into a place where it's like, whoa, is this? I, I'm not sure if I uh, know what's happening right now. Like right. the whole uh, thing we were talking about with the sound design being kind mm -hmm. of subliminal. I'm not mm -hmm. sure if that's inside or outside, and that was partly my intention is embracing that feeling of. We're in a theater and I'm not sure what, what the rules are, what the rules are yeah. anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and there, there's passages in it where he talks about, you know, things are, you're very smug right now. We're, we're comfortable here. Everything is safe. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, he starts to talk more about, um, what has happened and is this really real and how can you trust that's real and how can you trust that anything is not a dream. And is it, it a dream? Yeah. yeah. Right, right. And it's uh love relationships, whatever. Yeah. yeah what, however, you know, if you feel, if you feel set up on the little building blocks, something is going to run along and knock those out from under you. Right. Yeah. What, what stories have you created for yourself to give you meaning identity and how real are those stories? Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's heady stuff, but uh, also just incredibly fascinating to me, at least to, to sit in a theater and have those kind of questions uh, being asked in the context of a really engaging ghost story. <laughs> so you said you're going to be do doing this again, or you hope to? That's Ooh, the hope. To. That's yeah. the hope. I, I feel like, you know, this is uh this is a play you don't figure out in, <laughs> in one sitting, yeah. you know, especially in a three week, uh, you know, kind of annotated run. So mm -hmm. that's the desire is, is to keep investing in it. Really? I, you know, it's funny. We, we were, Matt and I were talking this week. The more we work on it, the longer the play becomes or seems to. I mean, the play <laughs> itself just plays in like an hour and 40 minutes with, right. a, with an intermission, but. It seems as if the more you start to scoop away and the more you learn and the more you study and the more Matt and I work on it, the more there is to learn about it. Mm -hmm. Right. We're both on a little little voyage of discovery here in a sense that when, when Matt brought the play in and said this was something that we should do, uh, we both thought about the play in, in terms of the long term. Mm -hmm. That is to say that we could put up a small production, a good production, and... and uh, and enjoy that, but that it would be something that we would keep going back to mm -hmm. in other venues and other cities and other places that this was. Um, and I think Matt was right in saying there was enough here to, it's like an onion skin, yeah, damn right, thing. You know, it just keeps coming. Right. The experience of performing it and then discovering what that is and discovering what this aspect of it is, is, 
is really quite striking. You know, in the theater, we always talk about that as a goal or we're discovering this play. Yeah. But frankly, you know, 90% of the time, you really don't. You just, you're doing the play and, and that's great. And you try to give people an honest experience. But this one is truly, it's like carrying our little books around and finding the <laughs> definition of this and what is that and little vampire books and what yeah. do they mean? And, a, a quick shout out. We had a, a, a wonderful <clears throat> asset on this production, Deirdre Hayes, right. who is yeah. uh, our, our assistant uh, director and she's a native Dubliner. So yeah. she was a, a wonderful asset in terms of helping us with understanding these locations and, um, you know, the dialect and it, it was pivotal to have her involvement. Yeah, so that kind of local understanding really helps you as you're working on interpreting the text. Um, well, can we go back to the relationship of the actor and the audience? Um, the question is for Steve. How aware are you and how much are you affected by the individual audience and how the individual audience <laughs> is taking what you're doing? It was funny, a critic came in to play, uh, a play about critics, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they're they're going to do that. <laughs> suddenly, yeah, suddenly have a critic in the audience. Right. But uh, a critic came last night, and she's, bless her heart, I know she's a really nice person. And, and she had a pad, a white pad, and a white pencil, uh-huh. and sat on the second row. Uh-huh. And I'm talking to her. Right. And she would look at me and then look down and right. write something right. about what I was doing. Right. That's disconcerting. Yeah, right. No kidding. <laughs> stuff like, you know, phones and things, uh, all that stuff, that never, that never really bothers me, I guess, uh-huh. because I've, I've done but, so much outside Shakespeare. Yeah, but it really is a different kind of focus that's required yeah, for this kind yeah. of show. And it is so much easier to be rattled or to be thrown by what an audience is doing because you are in harmony with them in a different way. You're in concert with them in right. a different way than you are when you're doing a straight play right. with, with other actors. Other you actors. you are truly in a different kind of relationship mm-hmm. where they can affect you and they have the ability to affect you. Mm-hmm. You have to be um, wide open to them. And you're yes, talking to them. We're having a conversation. Yeah. You know, and that's kind of that aspect I was talking about earlier and that McPherson mentions of, you know, being a guide and mm-hmm. uh, that that's the difference. And it really does as a storyteller, um, provide you with more power in some ways mm. because you, uh, you have a different kind of control, but also they have more vulnerability power with, yeah, yeah, you are more vulnerable. Yeah. Linda Eamond, uh, I talked to her after she did homebody cobble in mm-hmm. New York and yeah. that begins with the homebody's monologue, which is, I think maybe 40 minutes. I don't know how long it is anymore, but it's the same thing where she, you know, just her in the audience. She talked about how sometimes audiences came in wanting it to be funny mm-hmm. in ways that it wasn't. And she would have to, um, she would have to amend her performance in a way to change the audience to say, that's not allowed. That, that that's not what we're doing here. Right. Do you have any similar, um, is there any way that the audience can take it wrong and you have to kind of correct you know what, it? I'm you know not what I mean? as much in control of it right now. Uh-huh. So I, I can tell exact, first of all, I mean, Eamon, please. Right. One of the greatest you know, actors around. She's terrific. Yeah. But, um, she's farther along in the process. Mm-hmm. The right. night, the night, actually the other night, you know, what we've done four performances, live performances so far. Mm-hmm. Um, the other night, actually Thursday, when you came to see it, when the audience reacted in a funny way, mm-hmm. 
I would get blown out of the park. Mm-hmm. It was like somebody hit me with a fire hose. What? what? I could Where did that come tell from? what was right. going on because, you know, you're, you're logging one week, uh, when we were working on it, I, uh, they allowed me to use the Goodman rehearsal rooms while I was running the play, which was really nice of them. And, um, I logged like almost 60 hours just working by myself. Mm. And, you know, the, the production team and Matt and guys would come in and check and, have you died? No. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> You're working by yourself and suddenly there is this other element and right. you have to learn from them. Right. And, but you have to teach yourself how to do it. And occasionally, uh, a couple of nights ago, we had a breakthrough, I think, where at least the basics of what the relationship between him and the audience was going to be. Mm-hmm. And you could tell uh, by just by the mood and the tenure of the production team, you know, that this was the right kind of direction right. to mm-hmm. go mm-hmm. that, that, that would be that. But, um, I, I'm still, you know, you're just going to have to do it in front of audiences to yeah, see absolutely. all the range of, yeah. of response and get over the fear. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, it's well, that talk, knot in that stomach, you know, who's a dust knot and talks about the green knot, the green like, knot. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and not to have had to deal with it for so long. You may not have your strategies anymore. Well, yeah, but what a joy. I mean, why at this no, point? No, it's not. It's why, horrible. No, no, Feeling so anxious no, no. is awful. Why, why at this point? I mean, we're fairly smart guys, mm-hmm. you know, fairly talented. Why not throw ourselves something? Mm-hmm. Sisyphus. Uh-huh. Sisyphusian. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, what, uh, what else are we, what else should we be doing? Right. right. You know, I mean, uh, just in terms of, um, why not make it the biggest hurdle on the block? Yeah. John Judd said to me once, said, when I have to figure out what to do next, I say, okay, what am I most afraid of? Mm-hmm. That's what I have to do. That's exactly right. Which is and, not how most of us live. I think it is to a degree how mm-hmm. serious artists live. Well, you know, as I get older and we've been doing this a long time, I mean, I have, and well, you mentioned too, guys like John mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, Linda, right. uh, who I've known both those guys for a long, long time. And of course, uh, guys who are new to me, like Matt, who are simpatico, uh, if that's a word, but people have, who have that sort of, um, there are good reasons for doing things and there are bad reasons for doing things. Mm-hmm. The good reasons for doing things are when you come out the other side, a better craftsperson. Right. And you felt as if, you achieve something, not necessarily for um, singular gain, but for community gain mm-hmm. of what is a small. So it's not, we talk about one person's shows or one man's show. It's not. To me, it's six. There's six guys. There's like Jerry, the stage manager. Right. There's, you know. Uh, it's uh, a company. It's still Deirdre, a company. They may not yeah. be. Yeah. yeah. And that you have to have that. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a Chicago guy. You know, this is ensemble land. Man. Right. That's, right. that's the same thing with. It's definitely in our DNA, we, right? Well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's that Steppenwolf, you know, what Steppenwolf taught us. Yeah. It's right. onset. Right, right. And um, if you're not honest, get out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. <laughs> That's it. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me.